Well, good morning. Glad to have you here with us this morning. Good morning. Why don't you just maybe just smile to the person next to you and maybe say, you know, what are you looking forward to doing this afternoon out in this sun? Good morning, Ellie. Oh, this is off. Right. Fantastic. Well, it looks like there's going to be a lot of things happening this afternoon out in the sun, and aren't we appreciating that? And uh, we're really grateful to some of our very skilled people here in this church community who allows us to put together videos like the one that you've just seen. Um, so welcome today. Last week we went fishing together, didn't we? But the week before that we were talking about a theme that we've been unpacking in the book of Ephesians, a, a letter that a person by the name of Paul wrote to um, Jesus' people lived in that ancient habitat of, of Ephesus. And so two weeks ago we talked about learning to get along and today what we want to address is um, this theme of making it all work. Absolutely. So we're going to be reading the next chunk um, from the book of Ephesians and we're going to be starting at chapter 5 verse 21. You're welcome to follow on on the screens or if you've got a device you want to look at or maybe you've got a Bible that you want to open. So we're going to start reading at Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21. So Ali, you ready? We're going to just dive in? Absolutely. Great. So if you want to follow with us this morning, we're just going to do some reading and let's see where we get to. Be subject to one another out of reverence for the Messiah. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. The man you see is the head of the woman, just as the Messiah too is head of the church. He is the image of the saviour of the body, but just as the church is subject to the Messiah, in the same way women should be subject in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as the Messiah loved the church and gave himself for it, so that he could make it holy, cleansing it by washing it with water through the word. He did this in order to present the church to himself in brilliant splendor, without a single spot or blemish or anything of that kind, that it might be holy and without blame. That's how husbands ought to love their own wives, just as they love their own bodies. Someone who loves his wife loves himself. After all, nobody ever hates his own flesh. He feeds it and takes care of it, just as the Messiah does with the church, because we are parts of his body. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh. The hidden meaning in this saying is very deep, but I'm reading it as referring to the Messiah and the church. Anyway, each one of you must love your wife as you love yourself, and the wife must see that she respects her husband. Wow. There we go, Ali. <laughs> so um, uh, what's the first thing we need to say? Yeah, I think firstly that we are not married. Okay. Just in case you don't know us. Yeah. We are married, but not to each other. Yeah. I've, I've lost my husband. Well, you're married to Phil and I'm yeah. married to Bron, and Bron's sitting over there and Phil's sitting Who knows somewhere. Why? Okay, <laughs> very good. What's the second thing that we need to say? Yeah, I think the second thing we need to say is what, why we don't want to do this talk. Yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> why don't we want to do this talk? Yeah. So I think one of the reasons for me is that it creates reaction. 
Um, there is emotion wrapped up in this. I know um, harm has been done through some of this, and so I'm nervous about doing this talk. Yeah, and if I were to put my, my shepherd's pastoral hat on, mm. um, I realise that as I communicate, I don't want to say the wrong words and inadvertently stand on someone's toes or trigger something. Yeah, because your heart is good yep, for us. Yeah, I hope. Yeah. yeah. And I think as well for me, just the, um, just the fact that people will disagree over certain things. And I don't like it when people disagree. <laughs> but that's the way we are. All right. So why do we want to do this talk? Yeah, absolutely. Because relationships matter. Because it's really, really important that um, as we choose to follow Jesus in the world, the way we live um, really matters. That we live as God cre has, has created us to live, but also enabling others to live as they're created to live too. And I think the reason why we also need to have this talk is because what we're going to be talking about today is applicable for all relationships, mm. particularly those amongst the Jesus community. Um, and it talks about a whole new attitude and a whole new way of being. So it's really important that we do that. So no matter what stage or age or part of life that you're up to, um, whether you're checking out Jesus for the first time or maybe you've followed him for some time, uh, we think that these things that we want to talk about today and address are actually applicable to all kinds of relationships. Absolutely. And so the process, the way we're going to go about it is we're going to look at the text first, at the passage first, and we're going to unpack that for a while, um, remembering the things that we've heard about from that very wise man on the video that we listened to a moment ago. Um, and then um, after that, we're going to look about how does that apply to our lives, and we're going to share some practical I can't wait for the practical us. side oh, of things, Ellie. I'm very right. nervous about so. that. I'm glad Phil's not here. <laughs> <laughs> so should we just dive in? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do that. Okay, so if you want to follow this, we're just going to unpack this kind of together. And I'm just going to press that one more time. Be subject to one another out of your reverence for the Messiah. So this word, be subject, could also be submit to one another out of your reverence for the Messiah. So Ellie, as you think about this word, subject to or submit, um, how do you think our wider culture responds to that idea? Yeah, I think that um, they say it probably pretty negatively. Um, it might make you feel quite powerless or weak. Yep. It sounds quite passive. And I wonder whether um, the sense of if you do this, you lose your freedom, you lose dignity. I wonder whether that's how it's received. Well, the Greek word, what's behind this idea is that um, it really is this idea of to put under. And so the, the part of it, what, what it, I guess it's trying to get across, is placing your own interests under someone else's so that they go first. Absolutely. So is this saying that whoever we are, whether we're married or not, including both husbands and wives, we are to submit to one another to put... Yeah, I think that's a good under. reading of it because I guess the broader sweep of what's going on here, if you look at the life of Jesus, per se, he's this person who seems to, just by his loving attitude to others, lift them. Wherever he goes, he's lifting people. He gives of himself most profoundly. And we see this in all the different contexts that he's in. In fact... Paul, who's writing this letter and is writing uh, this one that we're reading now and then another one uh, titled Philippians, in chapter 2 he says something really similar, really written at the same time. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider other people more important than yourself. And so this can be really broadly and widely applied to all people, all Jesus followers. And you're doing that reading wide that we heard about. Yeah, I think so that's the important thing is that if you start to read wide, then uh, I think you're understanding something really deeply at the heart of who God is. Mm -hmm. So you ready for the next one? Yep. Okay. Are you ready for the next one? I am. Okay. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, how do you feel about that idea, Ellie? Yeah. At mixed, actually. Okay. Um, so when I was young, I have such a clear memory of um, 
somebody asking me, I would have been, I don't know, late teens maybe, of somebody saying to me, hey, what about this verse? What do you think about that um, as a woman, Ali? And I remember so clearly saying, well, I hope one day that I will find a man that I love so much that I will want to submit to. And, um, and then some years went by, and I met Phil, and I married Phil, and we got married. And um, I promised in our vows to love and obey him. He promised to love and honor me. We had no cherishing, no cherishing. in our vows. You I don't allowed to cherish, cherish him. No. Okay. All right. um, and, um, and I decided at that moment that, yeah. um, that if we ever got in a situation where a decision had to be made, we couldn't agree with each other, that the last say would be his. Um, and I felt okay about it. Okay. We actually haven't lived like that at all since the years have gone by. But I think because it just makes sense to us to live a sort of more mutual decision-making kind of way. So it's actually interesting that we haven't lived it even though we promised it, or yeah. I promised it. But, yeah, sorry, as, but, as, um, but I think as well the, the complexity of my feelings towards it are mm. very much impacted by the amount of harm that I know has been done yep. um, to many people. Um, particularly to women, uh, by this verse. So actually I can be quite angry and I can be quite sad about this too. So it's a really complex reaction that I have to this. Over the years of pastoral work too, I've heard stories about how this has been applied and I've been appalled when mm. I've, I've heard those kinds of things. It's not the majority, but it's uh, mm. sadly one of the aspects that I've seen how this has been used for harm. Um, I know when Bron and I were wrestling with this before we got married too, we uh, came to a similar agreement. Funny about that, that she said, you know, I will defer to you if we can't actually make a decision together. But it's actually not quite been like that mm. um, as we have kind of um, learnt to... How do, we, how do we actually get along um, together um, with each other? And so uh, I, I think that there's, there's a sense in this passage in that we can, um, in many ways... Um, uh, it's for us. It's been a growing thing. What does it actually mean to uh, cohabit together, um, together, mm. without it being applied, perhaps in some of those negative ways? Mm. Mm. Um, so the interesting thing here is that Paul goes on and he uses this. Uh, I hope you don't mind. I've done some drawing here. <laughs> this is my drawing. This I've got better. I think as the slides go on, yep. I've got better. But I do need to apologise first. I've drawn you with a skirt just for the yep. sake of designation, if that's all right. Um, that's because all right. the way in which Paul actually uses this imagery here, he talks about Jesus, the Christ, and the church being subordinate to, or just as Christ is the head of the church, so too husbands are the head of, of the wives. And so he's using this kind of analogy um, back and forth. Uh, one's actually describing the other, the other one describing um, in reverse order. But he's not saying, we must be clear, that he's not sort of putting um, husbands and Jesus on the same level because it's not, you know, a husband cannot save his wife. It's only yes. Jesus who is the saviour. Yes, and I have heard it too that even though there are some men out there who do have a bit of a Messiah complex, um, this is not applicable to them. No, so the, the, the analogy falls down. It's not a one-to-one -one correspondence. Yeah. So can you give us some context to all Yeah, this? look, this is really interesting because as you explore the context, Paul's writing to a Greco-Roman world and these are Jesus followers who are inhabiting the structures and the culture of the day. And I, I did another drawing. This is how it looks like. So it's a very hierarchical um, world in which they have it. 
um, very different to the context of suburban Melbourne. Um, if you lived in uh, Rome, there would be Caesar at the top, there'd be a ruling elite, there'd be this thing called the paterfamilias, I'll come back to in a moment, women, children and slaves. And so it was a really bottom-heavy world in which they inhabited. Hierarchical, very stratified, and you knew your place, everyone had a place. And so this paterfamilias simply means um, uh, the, the father of the family. And the father of the family was typically the oldest male, and they owned, if you like, had authority over the entire household. And so that slaves, uh, women, um, uh, the children, they had sole authority. They really believed in that culture that a strong family, ordered family unit would bring order to the wider society. And so that, that's how it kind of operated. I think what I have always been amazed at when I look at um, the context is the age gap um, of between the husband yeah. and the wife, that generally the husband was about 30 years of age and generally the wife was 15. And um, in our culture, we go, oh, that's That would be great. weird. Yeah. But actually, in that day, that was exactly what was expected because, you know, you married the woman to have lots of babies, so she needs to be young, you know, with many years to do that. Um, but it was sho it's shocking yeah, sometimes to us. The idea of that was, of course, for, um, um, for men to be born and, and women, for men to be born, pass on the family name. Um, and along with that, too, is this other designation of the honour-shame culture in which they lived. So you can imagine in this hierarchy, structure those above you you give honor to those below you um, if, if you like that that, that that you don't have to and so there's this sense with it is that you can bring honor to someone or shame to someone according to how you occupy yes yeah, absolutely and I think um, it's really relevant here the point you made in the video of minding the gap yeah. our worlds are so very different yeah yeah which it really does um, make you ask the question is this a divinely ordered structure that's mm. given or actually is it more a cultural mm. appropriation of the the if the way of the hierarchies and the structure of, of the, the wider community and the wider society mm. um, so it really comes quite critical the interesting thing here is that when again you observe the life of Jesus mm. You see the opposite thing happening. And so you have Jesus elevating the status of women, even in the Jewish culture, which would have been stratified as well. Um, you have Jesus elevating. So you've got the story of Mary and Martha. So there's Mary who's allowed to sit at Jesus' feet like a disciple, like one of the men, and he applauds that. Um, you have this team teaching, what amounts to be a team teaching, Priscilla and Aquila. They're traveling around the Roman Empire talking to people about Jesus. Mm -hmm. They're a husband and wife team. They're, they're doing that together. You have women who are the first eyewitnesses mm -hmm. of the resurrection. And so that's written into, and I, I'm, it's, it's just so... Strange to say it today, but a woman's testimony in that culture would not have been given the tick. And so to have it written there and stayed there is actually a profound thing. Mm. You've got um, Phoebe, who is probably conducting a church in her home, who's actually holding the letter to the Romans that's addressed to the Romans. So 100 or 200 people who are Jesus followers in Rome. She takes the letter to them. She probably reads it. And within that letter, in the last chapter, it talks about this woman called Junia, who's actually described as one of the apostles. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't answer all the questions that are there in the text. There's some complex things, but you see this elevation of women, both in Jesus' life and actually written into these, um, if you like, the letters that Paul is writing. So the shocking thing is not, sadly, what we're describing here in, in the negative sense. The shocking thing is about... The next What you're going to say. Yeah, <laughs> so absolutely. this is the shocking thing it would have been. In, in those days, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, husbands, love your wives as the Messiah loved the church. So how do you feel about that, Troy? Well, in today's culture, I think a husband loving 
wife is not a far-fetched thing, but it probably depends on what we mean by the word love. Because today in our culture, love can mean everything and nothing at the same time. So I want to know what we mean by the word love. All right, this is what we mean. Um, love is to act for the well-being of another. And just, I love that it has the sense of action. It's not just feeling. Love feelings are great. But actually, it's a choice, a choice to act for the well-being of another, placing somebody else's interests ahead of your own. So lifting somebody else's interests up, lifting somebody else's well-being up. And I love how then Paul goes on to describe Jesus's love. For the well-being of the church, Jesus desires for her to be holy and pure and blameless. He knows the state that the church is in. We've got a picture, I think, too. Um, But so that King Jesus can actually dwell with his bride, so that she is radiant. And I love the way it says it in the verse, in brilliant splendor. He must act. It's only because of Jesus' self-giving love, because the fact that he was prepared to give up his life, that actually this can be accomplished, that she can be pure and blameless and radiant. Jesus absolutely loves his church back then and today. And, um, And so he gives his life. He gives his life for her. And that's the example that is given to men. That is the way that men are to love their wives, not about making her holy. That's what Jesus does for the church. That's not what passes over in the imagery here. But he is to seek her well-being above his own so that he is prepared to lay down his life, to love with such incredible self-giving love um, for the well-being and for the interests of his wife. So if you're in Rome and you went down the pub, the idea of the pater familias, the head of the household, to actually... Uh, go to that extent to care for his 15-year-old bride, per se, uh, would actually have been the laughing stock of the pub then. This would have been the radical thing back in his DNA and his culture. And so just to get this, I think, more imbued within the thinking of the, the community of people that he's writing to, he presses it now and it goes, gets a little bit funky from here because he goes, that's just when you think he's going to say to the men, that's how husbands ought to love their own wives, just like Jesus who died for, so you, but he doesn't. He actually uses another image that looks like, and we're just going to, yep, um, yep. He says, I want you to love just as you love your own body. Someone who loves his wife loves himself. And just in that moment, we were about to say, wait a second, Paul, weren't you just talking about Jesus dying and being sacrificial? He says, no, no, I want you to love now like you would care for your own body. And he, he says, when you care for your own body, you're actually caring for your own wife. This is how much he wants to press this idea of the togetherness or the bond or this... Um, this sense of connection. So I've drawn another picture. And I've I'm wondering whether it's a texture and a key. No, it's not something a that makes his hair grow anyway. Clearly. <laughs> no, that is a toothbrush. The green is a toothbrush, and and the blue is toothpaste. Okay. Ah, gotcha. So the idea here is that just as as a man would care for his, he'd brush his teeth. We hope, um, and comb his hair. He then sort of says, in the same way that when you're caring for yourself, you're caring for your wife. So that's why I've done this sort of overlapping. And the only way he can get there in that imagery is to press it a little bit further. And this is where it gets a little bit silly because he says, just as Jesus is the head of his body, the church, then that's kind of you and I all mapped out and everyone else sort of mapped out hanging off his parts because you all make part of his body. So there's this 
great sense he's appealing to is that when you look at yourself, you should look at both of you as being actually together one and the same. So when, that's why he can get to when you care for yourself, yeah. you're caring for her. Absolutely. And he takes us back to Genesis at that moment as well. And just um, the story of when uh, Adam is looking for his companion and he looks at all the animals and none of them will do as his companion. And so out of his flesh, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, woman is made. So they are of the same stuff which I love, and it presses it, kind of gets a little bit weird here, which makes you wonder in this moment, Paul, are you actually talking about Jesus and the people he loves? Or are you actually talking about husbands and wives? But he goes on and clarifies that in the yeah, next line. Absolutely. He does acknowledge that it is a big mystery. It's hard to get our heads around. This is a great mystery, but I am speaking about the Messiah and the church. And, and then he presses on a little bit further. Yep. And so this is how he closes the passage anyway. Each one of you must love your wife as you love yourself, and the wife must see that she respects her husband. Which kind of brings it all the way back up to the, the top star. again. Absolutely. All right, so if we pause here for a moment, I want to ask the question, how does all of this work? If that's kind of the pure um, mathematics, um, the applied. Has anyone done applied mathematics? Was it on Friday or something like that? Applied uh, on Friday? Sorry to bring that up. But how ha does it actually all work? Yeah, absolutely. So if we hold in our, in our thinking um, how this passage starts, just the idea that we are all to submit to each other, and, um, and if we hold in our thinking that we are all to love each other, because you don't have to read very wide to see that we're to do this. I love the image that we've heard um, somewhere else in, in our preparation of the marriage dance. We love this idea, this sense that as I choose myself to put myself, my interests, my well-being under my husband at the very same time that he chooses himself to put his interests and his well-being under me at the same time that I am choosing to elevate his interests, to elevate his well-being at the same time that he is choosing to elevate and put my interests first. This, this incredible dance goes on where we are mutually serving each other, where we are mutually loving each other. And as this happens, um, that it raises us up and it elevates us. I think this is such a beautiful image um, of marriages that we are free and willing to elevate the other and to put the other first. Because I find that I think that if a marriage is lopsided and you just get the one person putting themselves under the other one, they get squashed. And um, where love or submission are forced, I don't think that this is how God intends marriages to be. I think that the actual marriage that is the dance, the beautiful dance of love and humility actually brings freedom and security and joy and hope and plenty more too. I picked up on this as we were growing up for the kids. I would often say, as this is applied to relationships, I'd say to them, now, you can meet people in relationships who um, treat you like this, and in relationships you can meet people who treat you mm. like this. And um, that when you're looking for people that might be life partners, then you certainly want to know that the person that you're alongside is someone who um, you become a better version of you in their presence because they have this attitude of wanting to lift you and wanting your good to be actually ahead of theirs. Um, it's interesting, though, that when we talk about this kind of way of inhabiting relationships and a marriage relationship too, there's usually two fears that, that yeah. I, I hear. The first fear 
is that, well, if, if the man is not the, the head in that same context, it's not applied like this, well, then uh, a, a woman will just become the next superior. And, and I don't think that's actually what Paul's trying to get at at all. The second fear that I hear is that if there's no sense of structure, hierarchy, or head, then there'll be chaos. And again, for someone pressing that, I just don't think they're really understanding this kind of dynamic of uh, who goes first? Well, you both go first. There's this sense in which um, if you're inhabiting the Jesus kind of life there, it's something that you're both wanting to willingly do. Um, it's interesting. There's no place that I find in the Bible where it actually says, now someone could get, you know, pick me wrong here, where it actually says that a man must be the one who makes the decision. Yes. I, I haven't come across that yet. Um, in fact, the image that I think, given Paul's taken us back to Genesis, mm -hmm. that I think is actually a, a much more apt one that reflects before everything went belly up, is this idea, and a commentator's put it like this, that when God formed Eve, he didn't take um, from the bone of his head so that she would um, be above him, or from his foot that he might stand above her, but from his side, from his ribs, so that they might be mutually um, together and equal um, and, and enjoy that sense of mutuality together. So I kind of like this image. And I, that's what I see Jesus doing and, and these letters actually doing. Yeah, absolutely. So, this is probably the, the, one of the questions that I think is really worth asking, is that um, where we'd like sometimes Paul to uh, pull apart the structures of culture, we find him not doing that. This is the same with slavery. Um, but what we do see him doing... Do you like my cup, by the way? I think by the time I've actually handle, got here... I've actually, my drawing's got a little bit better, would you say? Uh, no, other okay. than the hand. Um, what he's doing is that he wants to infuse this with a new substance and a new attitude so that he actually doesn't deconstruct these things. What he does do is say, I want you to bring such a different attitude to the structures that exist that it almost makes them opaque. So that when you are bringing this new attitude within the systems that are there, it's actually the system itself is not the thing that perpetuates it. What is actually the important thing is that there's a new substance that's actually inhabiting the structure. And that seems to be the radicalization of that Jesus communities offered the world around about them. Absolutely. So I reckon the question that we need to ask from this, if we were to take it seriously, is does my life tell that story? Yeah, absolutely. Is my life reenacting the drama of Jesus' self-given love in every relationship that I have? Yep. In my relationship with my friends, in my yep. relationship as a parent with my kids, in my work environment, as well as with my husband as well. Yeah. So again, just to reiterate that, it's the when someone says, who goes first, I think they're asking the wrong question. Mm -hmm. um, both need to say, we go first. I will do this for you, you will do this for me. And as soon as someone's saying, why aren't you doing that? You're missing the point. Maybe there's a time to talk about those things. And I think if this morning raises things for people that need to be discussed, then they need to be talked about. But it's this mutuality that just comes through, this radicalness of this that makes these structures, if you like, really opaque mm. in compared to them. Yeah. All right, so that's a little bit of the applied. Now, can we dig a little bit deeper? And how does this work itself out in your relationship with Phil? Absolutely. And, um, and we both agree that it's much easier to get our heads around this than it is to actually live it out. It's actually really hard to do this. Um, I have a picture here. This is my front garden. And I have uh, creatively designed the front garden. And my husband has put in a lot of muscle in rock moving and soil moving and everything else. And it's pretty much 
complete, almost, other than that really ugly brown strip at the front. There's a garden, then a lovely sand path, and then an ugly brown strip. And now is the time to plant grass in that ugly brown strip. But my husband does not want to plant grass on that because grass has never, ever worked there. So why would it work? I think work? it's too shady. No, it's far too shady and hard and shallow and everything. It's exactly right. Um, but, so he wants to put plants in there, but there's a basketball ring and it gets trampled on and will the plants survive and will they detract from the beauty of the garden that I have created? So this is a live discussion that we are having at the moment. Fortunately, very one-sided at the moment, but, <laughs> no, it's not. But, <clears throat> so, but his point is, that's the only bit of grass that'll be at the front and our lawnmower lives way at the back of the garden and he mows the lawn. That's the, the role that he has. Um, and so he would have to bring our very heavy lawnmower all the way down the back garden, down several bits of steps, round lawnmower. the house. Yeah. It is. And uh, I think, I don't know, I've never used it. And, uh, <laughs> and he would have to mow the lawn on that tiny little patch when it might be failing grass anyway. So we are having this debate, and yet we choose in that um, to, live, to try and live this dance. And in my head I go, if it matters to Phil, it matters. If it matters to Phil, it matters. If it matters to Phil, it matters. And yet I want grass. <laughs> if it matters to Phil, it matters. And so we're in a debate. Is, will he make the last decision? No, we'll make a decision together. But we are actually, we've decided, he's very lucky that we're doing this talk yeah. while we're making Yeah, he's just texted me now, actually, yeah. Ellie. <laughs> he's saying we should do this talk every week. I know, <laughs> I know. But we are going to go... No, he hasn't. No. Uh, we are going to go and look at plants and, um, and actually think, well, if we put plants in, which plants would work? Very good. So in six months' time, if it's still bare like that... <laughs> we haven't decided. OK. <laughs> um, all right. So I think I can one-up that. Yes. Is that all right? So um, this is... I was just going to say that this is not my finest moment. No. OK? So I just need a little bit of grace and kindness here. So two weeks ago, um, I was uh, doing the dishes in the evening time. Bron was cooking. I was doing the dishes. Uh, we have a pattern in the morning time that I cook the uh, porridge, unless she gets up earlier and then she cooks. And then from that, um, she might leave her pot, which happens to be here. This is her porridge pot. And she will fill it up with water because she wants to soak all the because porridge Because she's gum. wise, because that's okay, the right thing to right. do. And then she leaves it in, in the sink. And then if I cook my porridge, I'm in the habit of actually uh, cleaning it all first because when the pot's still hot, it comes off really easy. I get it done. It doesn't sit there in the sink all day. So two weeks ago, I'm doing the dishes. This is not my finest moment. Um, and I do all of the dishes, but there's this pot sitting there right in front. And it's filled to the top with water. It's got all the porridge scum there. And this idea pops into my head. I don't know where it came from. You don't need to wash the pot, Troy, because that is bronze responsibility. That's her porridge pot. And it looks really nasty as well, right? That idea came into my head. We feel for you, Bron. Yeah. <laughs> And, and what's more, another idea came into my head that I'm not going to do it. So I actually left the porridge pot there. I know this is not my finest moment, all right? And, and so she looks across and she goes, oh, you're not going to do the porridge pot? And I go, no, that's your responsibility. You need to do it because the best way to do it is to wash it off in the morning. She said, well, I just cooked you dinner. And, and I said, yeah, look, you did, and I haven't washed your pot. She said, well, you could eat dinner yourself if you want. <laughs> Or even make it yourself. Yeah, and in that, that moment, another idea came into my head. 
eggs on toast is something I can do. <laughs> and so I did. <laughs> I left the pot there. This is horrible. It didn't come out like this when we were going over. However, however, two days later, I think, or three days later, there was the pot again, sitting there as I was doing the dishes. And I reached over and I took that pot and an idea popped into my head. Before the talk, <laughs> what are you going to do with the pot? And I said, I'm going to wash the pot. <laughs> without complaining. From now on, always. <laughs> I still think washing it first when nah. the pot's still on. <laughs> but see, that's the hardness and that's the challenge, actually. It's not often in the big things, it's in the small things that make it hard. And I think they're the things we have to put our own little self-interests and this little thing that says, do it my way, to the side. And that's exactly what Paul is getting at. And so the question that I have to ask myself before I ask anyone else, is my life reflecting that radical Jesus story that not only inhabits my own life, my own marriage, but others as well? Is that happening? What does that mean? So yeah. that's where we are. So we're going to invite the band up. Thank you, guys. So what's at the very heart um, of this discussion that we're having this morning. We've been zoomed in on this one little passage in Ephesians. But actually, if we zoom back out a bit, we look at the heart of it, and we see that this, um, this passage about choosing to elevate each other's in love and humility and serving each other fits under, um, as we zoom back, this instruction to be filled with God's Spirit. We completely recognize that it is hard, and we need God's help. We need His Holy Spirit to help us to be able to lay down our interests, to be able to lay down our well-being for the sake of other people. But we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then again, as we zoom back further, we look at a verse right near the start in Ephesians, which says, Jesus is all in all. And that is the verse that sort of holds all of Ephesians together. It says that Jesus is the King of heaven and earth, and he holds everything together. And as we remember that this is who Jesus is, he is the, the King who is heaven, um, who is the King of heaven and on earth. And we pause and we remember that. How completely extraordinary that he doesn't just tell us to do all that we've discussed, but actually he was prepared to do that. He needed to do that. He chose to do that, to act and live a life of humility and love and for other people. So we thought this morning we might finish by sharing a communion space. And if that's new to you, Ali's going to explain in a moment. But it talks about the meal that Jesus had with his followers the night before he was betrayed. It said that he took bread and he broke it. He gave thanks. He said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He said, in the same manner after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this is the cup of the new agreement. My blood shed for you between God and humankind. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So in a moment, we're going to share communion together. And then later on, it might be at the end of, um, 
of today that you think, actually, I need to talk to somebody about what's being discussed. Um, maybe you want to come and talk to us or somebody else. And it may be that you go, actually, we're in a really hard place in this relationship, whatever kind of relationship that is. And it may be that we'd encourage you to actually talk to somebody, a professional in that maybe. But, but seek help that you need because this is, a, this is the best way to live in that. So as we do communion, there are tables around this room. There's a table out in the foyer as well. So um, when you're ready, go to the table and take a cup and take some bread and take them back to your seat. And maybe just pause and remember who Jesus is and all that he's done before you in your own time take um, the cup and take the bread. If this is something fairly new to you, you're most welcome to join with us in doing that if you know that you your heart's desire is to draw near to jesus then you're most welcome to join us in that there are these cards on the table if you want to know a bit more about what communion actually is you can have a look at that so the band will play and so come come eat and drink <laughs>